Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Luke writes, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the inspired, eternal, infallible, and inerrant word of God for us this morning. Now, two weeks ago, uh, we looked at the account of the rich young ruler. Most of you know that story. I won't recount it for us today, but... After Jesus interacts with that rich young man and the young man goes away from Jesus sad uh, because the Lord uh, exposed really his heart of idolatry, Jesus turned and said to the crowd in that moment, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus made that statement, many of the crowds listening said, well, who can be saved then? Because remember, I said, in the minds of the first century Jews, the fact that someone had great material wealth, they believed, was a sign that they were blessed by God. And so the the crowds were asking, well, if rich people who have received so many material blessings from God can't even be saved, then how can anyone be saved? Who can be saved then? The crowds were beginning to realize that salvation, not just for the rich, but for anyone, was impossible. And Jesus responded to the crowds by affirming that. He said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus was telling us salvation is impossible for us to achieve. We are too wicked, beloved. We are too sinful. We've been hearing in our Wednesday night Bible study in the book of Ephesians that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are born into this world enemies of God. Our entire nature is ruined and corrupted by sin. We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we are by nature sinners. And because of that, the Apostle Paul declares in Romans chapter 3 that no one understands and no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. That is one reason why salvation is impossible with man. No one seeks for God. I wonder if we really believe that as Christians. If I took a, a, an accounting of the church culture in uh, the United States of America in the 21st century, I think we'd have to say it seems that Christians do not really believe it's true that no one seeks for God. After all, we have an entire church movement called the 
quote, seeker-sensitive church movement. Even within our own particular Christian tradition, we who claim to believe in doctrines like the depravity of man or original sin, and we who claim to uphold the Bible as the inerrant eternal word of God, do we really believe what Paul says in Romans 3, that no one seeks for God and no one understands? Just last week, I read a book review from a well-known pastor in our own denomination, someone who you might label a, a quote-unquote celebrity pastor. They do exist tragically in the PCA. And in that book review, he wrote about how this book would be helpful to those who are, quote, chasing after God's love. What does that phrase mean? I, I think that phrase, beloved, is gibberish. I think it's contemporary babble. Those who are chasing after God's love? Where is that in the scriptures? Isn't that just another way of saying those who are seeking for God? Romans 3. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Salvation for man is impossible. Because of our sinful, rebellious nature, we won't even be seeking for the God who made us and who can save us. But Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Salvation for God, beloved, is not only possible, in fact, it has actually been accomplished already in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And now, God the Holy Spirit is applying that salvation to the people of God. And so last week, we saw this truth at work. Jesus can go from declaring that salvation is impossible with man, possible with God, and then last week, we read and heard about a blind beggar. And we saw how salvation with God was possible. As Jesus came to that blind beggar and not only restored his physical sight, but also gave that man salvation, declaring to him, your faith has now made you well. In other words, your faith has saved you. Salvation for that poor blind man was possible only with God, and Jesus accomplished it in that man's life. Now our text this morning, we do continue to see that salvation is possible with God. Not only for the poor, as we saw last Sunday, but also for the rich. When Jesus talked to the, the, the rich young ruler, uh, he said it's, it, it's you know, for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven to be like a camel going through the eye of a needle, meaning it's impossible. But here, in our text today, we see Jesus doing, once again, what is impossible. Today in our text, we see, a pers- we see in the person of Zacchaeus, uh, to use Christ's own words, we see a camel passing through the eye of a needle as the salvation of this exor- extraordinarily rich man was accomplished by Jesus Christ. Our text opens today with Jesus entering the city of Jericho. Last week, he was approaching Jericho and met the poor blind beggar. Now, he's in Jericho. And remember what we said last week. Jericho was within a day's walk of the city of Jerusalem. And so, in the life of Christ, we are only a few days at this point away from the trial, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And as Jesus enters Jericho, just like many of the places he was going, there was an uproar. 
The crowds were following him. Everybody wanted to get a glimpse of this man who they heard so much about, this man who performed miracles, this man who said strange things. And Luke says that in that crowd was a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, this is the only place in the Bible where this man shows up. And in Luke's uh, gospel this morning, we learn a few things about this man. First, we learn that he was a tax collector. Now, we've met tax collectors before in Luke's gospel. In fact, uh, you may remember earlier, Luke told us about Jesus saving another tax collector, a man named Levi, who he not only saved, but called to be one of his disciples. Levi, we know him better today by the name of Matthew. And we know a little bit about tax collectors. We know they were hated by their fellow Jews. They were seen as traitors uh, because they collected taxes for the Roman Empire. And uh, I told you before, they were so hated, so considered to be dishonest, uh, that if you uh, were a victim of a crime and your only witness was a tax collector, you were out of luck. Because the word of a tax collector carried absolutely no weight in a legal court. This is how despised they were in Jewish society. And so we know Zacchaeus is hated by his fellow Jews because he was a tax collector. But we find out that he's not just a tax collector. He is the chief tax collector. He was in charge of the entire tax-collecting organization in, or in Jericho at that time. And that was a big deal because uh, Rome essentially set up three major tax-collecting stations throughout Israel. Jericho was one of those three major tax zones. It was along a major trade route. It was sort of the last stop before you got to the capital city of Jerusalem. This was a lucrative position that Zacchaeus held. And no doubt, all of that added to the hatred that the Jews had for this man. He was the head man in charge of one of the most taxed regions of Israel. Because of that, he was very, very rich. He was rich not only because of that lucrative position, he was rich because he, just like just about every other tax collector that day, he overcharged people when collecting taxes, and he pocketed the extra money. Zacchaeus was exceedingly rich because of a lifetime of cheating people. His extraordinary wealth was almost all gained through dishonest means. So this is what we know about Zacchaeus, but we also know something else. We also know that apart from his job, apart from his wealth, apart from his dishonesty and his hate of status among the Jews, we know he that verse 3 says he was on the... Um, the uh, shorter side of the height chart. He was, uh, he was small in stature, Luke says. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. I don't think we can definitely say he had a physical disability like dwarfism or something like that. He may have just been shorter than most people. But if you are a shorter man, a smaller man, and you're trying to push through a crowd to see Jesus, as Luke tells us Zacchaeus was, and you were pretty much hated by everyone around you in that crowd, you can kind of see how all of that would work against you and make it nearly impossible uh, to see the person you're desiring to see. This is the situation Zacchaeus was in. He is a despised, dishonest, short guy who Luke says was seeking to see 
who Jesus was. Now Luke's phrasing there is interesting. Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. Luke doesn't say he was seeking to merely get a glimpse of Jesus out of curiosity. He wanted to see who he was. Now what does that phrase mean? Quite honestly, we don't know exactly what that means, but Luke is giving us the impression that Zacchaeus desired to see Jesus with something within him that was more than just, you know, I got to see this guy who causes a ruckus everywhere he goes. There's something that goes far deeper in Zacchaeus' desires here, beloved. It's more than simple curiosity. He wanted to see who Jesus was. And much like the blind man last week, so deep did that desire go for Zacchaeus that he did not allow the crowds to hinder him from coming to see Jesus. Zacchaeus instead does something quite desperate in our text today, something which was actually, in that culture, very undignified. In order to see who Jesus was, Zacchaeus climbed many, one of the many sycamore trees that would have been planted along the roadside in Jericho in that day. And as he does it, as he uh, climbs this tree and tries to see who Jesus was, he does indeed find out who exactly Jesus is. So at this point, I think we should stop with the narrative a bit, beloved, and uh, address something, because I think maybe some of you might be asking a very good question. Some of you might be asking, you know, Pastor, you just opened the sermon by telling us that no one seeks for God. That one of the reasons why salvation is impossible for man is because in our fallen, depraved nature, we can't even seek out the God who can save us. And yet, Luke says Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. And, you know, Pastor, you just told us that this means that Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus for some deeper reason, reasons that go beyond mere curiosity. What is going on here? Is Luke sort of contradicting Paul when Paul says in Romans 3 that no one seeks for God? Is this a contradiction? Because it seems like Zacchaeus was truly seeking God. Well, beloved, it's most certainly not a contradiction. In fact, Luke served as the Apostle Paul's scribe. He was one of the Apostle Paul's most closest companions. And it's very likely he wrote his gospel under the oversight and authority of the Apostle Paul. So this is not Luke contradicting Paul's theology. Beloved, what is happening here is a great divine truth. Zacchaeus was seeking for Jesus because the reality is Jesus was seeking him first. Verse 10 is the key to understanding what is happening here in this passage. Why did Jesus come into this world? According to Jesus, it is to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus may have thought that he was seeking Jesus. He was trying to find out who Jesus was. But Jesus ultimately was the one who was seeking Zacchaeus first. Look at verse 5. Jesus came to the place. He looked up. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. There's a question that's raised by verse 5. How does Jesus know Zacchaeus' name? 
Luke never tells us he was introduced to him. He never tells us that someone told Jesus his name. The fact that Jesus knew this man's name, beloved, tells us that there is something supernatural happening here. And I think R.C. Sproul rightly put it. He said, according to his human nature, Jesus had probably never laid eyes on this little man before. However, according to his divine nature, Jesus not only knew Zacchaeus, but he knew him from the foundation of the world. Jesus, beloved, called to Zacchaeus and knew his name because Zacchaeus himself was one of Christ's lost lambs. He was one who Jesus came to seek and save. He was one who was chosen by God the Father before the foundations of the world were laid. He was one who was chosen to be part of the people that the Father promised to give His Son in eternity past. He was chosen to be part of the Bride of Christ. He was chosen to be called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. He was one who the Good Shepherd knew. Because Jesus says in the Gospel of John, the Good Shepherd knows His sheep, and His sheep hear His voice. Why did Zacchaeus seek to see who Jesus was? Why was he longing to see Jesus? Why could he be, quote-unquote, a seeker? Because, beloved, Jesus sought him. The entire reason why Jesus entered into the city of Jericho on that day and went to that exact spot in that exact time was because Jesus was seeking Zacchaeus. C.S. Lewis gives a really good illustration of what we're talking about here in, in his book, The Silver Chair, which is part of his Chronicles of Narnia books. Most of you are probably familiar with the general storyline of those books, but in this book, The Silver Chair, there are two children who are being chased down by some school bullies, and they're desperate to escape the beatings that are sure to come to them if the bullies would get their hands on them. And so they're hiding, and as they begin to hide, they cry out to the lion, Aslan, who in C.S. Lewis's works is a representation of Jesus Christ. They cry out for Aslan, and the next thing you know, the children find themselves in the magical land of Narnia, having been taken out of our world, and eventually they find Aslan. And in their conversation with Aslan, the lion says something to the extent of, this is, you know, this is why I called you to Narnia. Now when Aslan says that, the children object and they say, wait a minute, Aslan, you did not call out to us. We called out to you. To which Aslan responds, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you first. Aslan was calling. He was seeking the children. And that's why in turn the children were calling out to him. That's what Luke is talking about here this morning. Yes, in our depraved fallen nature, no one seeks for God. No one understands. But with God, salvation is possible. God the Father sent into this world the Good Shepherd, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God in flesh. And it is Jesus who came. Again, verse 10 says it clearly. It is Jesus who came to seek and to save his lost sheep. Zacchaeus was lost and now is found by Jesus. And when Jesus came to him, when, when Jesus came to him, seeking for him, look at what he says. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must, not I want to, 
not I desire, I must stay at your house today. Jesus was showing that there was a divine compulsion, if you will, at work here. He could not stay at anyone else's house that night. He must stay with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was the lost sheep, or as we heard earlier in Luke's Gospel, the lost coin, the lost son. He was the one that Jesus was seeking in that moment. And again, if I can quote R.C. Sproul, he said that Jesus was in essence saying to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, I know who you are. You are one of my sheep. Get down from that tree. I must come to your house because we have business together, the greatest urgency. What business was Sproul referring to there? Well, he was referring to the business of Zacchaeus' eternal salvation, which we see from the rest of the text was absolutely, completely accomplished that day. Jesus responded to the call of Jesus, the effectual call of Jesus Christ, the call of Jesus which never returns void. He responded. He came down immediately out of that tree as fast as he could, and Luke says he joyfully received the Savior. And although the crowds around grumbled because Jesus would dare to reach out and to have fellowship and dine with such a terrible person, Jesus and Zacchaeus they go on their way to Zacchaeus' house, the shepherd and the lost sheep, together in fellowship. And we find out that salvation came to Zacchaeus. Now it's interesting, at least to me, that Luke doesn't tell us what happens at Zacchaeus' house. We don't get a lot of insight into the conversation that Jesus and Zacchaeus have together. We just get a glimpse at the end of the conversation, right? We know that at the, by the time they're... Uh, at the end of their conversation, as their conversation comes to a close, Zacchaeus declares he's going to give half of his goods to the poor and repay anyone who he defrauded fourfold. Jesus then declares that salvation has come to this house because here is a son of Abraham. Now I want us to be careful with how we handle these verses, beloved. Jesus does not declare Zacchaeus' salvation because Zacchaeus was giving away half his possessions and repaying what he fraudulently gained. Understand that. Zacchaeus was not making atonement for his past sins. That is very important to understand. Jesus alone will be the one who could and who would in just a few days from this event make atonement. Not only for Zacchaeus' sins, but make atonement for all the sins of God's elect on the cross. Instead, Zacchaeus' declaration is an outward sign of an inward change. Zacchaeus had come and received the Savior by faith, and he had repented of his sin. His work of restitution, it wasn't a work of atonement, it was a work of repentance. He wasn't just saying to Jesus, sorry for my sins, forgive me. He was turning away from his sin. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not just an apology. Repentance is a changing of your mind about sin. You no longer see your sin as good and beneficial. Instead, you begin to see it as God sees it, and you hate it, and you grieve it, and you desire to turn away from it. 
Repentance is a turning away from your sin towards the mercy of God that is found in Jesus Christ. And that is what was happening in Zacchaeus' heart. And we should note, Zacchaeus, in his repentance, he, he begins to show the reality that he has a new heart because he begins to show something that we have no inclination he ever showed before in his life. He begins to show a heart of generosity. He repented not just of defrauding people. I think he repented of the greed that had taken root in his heart. Greed which manifested itself in defrauding people. Well, how do we know that? Well, I think we know that because Zacchaeus went above and beyond in his repentance. He went above and beyond what even God's law required of him to do in that moment. He gave away half of his belongings. This wasn't required of him by the law of God, yet he joyfully did it. And then he went above and beyond by repaying those he defrauded fourfold. The Old Testament law given to Israel, it did require a restitution for defrauding someone. And in addition to paying back what was stolen, it required an additional 20% or one-fifth to be paid to the victim of the, of, of the fraud. Zacchaeus went well above that required 20%. He gave fourfold back to the people he defrauded. And why did he go above and beyond? He went above and beyond, beloved, because his heart was changed. He received the Savior by faith, with joy, repented of his sins, turned away from them, and now he was expressing the truth of what was happening in his own heart by his outward expressions of repentance and generosity. This is a man, beloved, who was truly changed by the salvation of Jesus Christ. I think this leads to a very important question for God's people this morning. The question, of course, is, is this true of you? Is this true of me? Has our salvation had any bearing on our outward actions? If we're claiming to belong to Jesus, if we are claiming that we have repented and received Him by faith, if we are claiming to be new creations, born again, are we living like Zacchaeus? Has the change of our hearts manifested itself in outward actions? Beloved, if it has not done that in us, then maybe we need to examine our hearts a little more closely. Begin to ask ourselves, have we truly repented? Do we continue to repent, as every Christian must do throughout our lives? Are we truly trusting and receiving Jesus with joy as Zacchaeus did. Because if you think you can have a new heart, be born again, and not manifest that reality in your outward actions, you are gravely mistaken. Actions, our outward actions, they flow from the condition of our hearts. And if our actions have not changed at all, then chances are, neither has our heart. Zacchaeus didn't atone for his sins through his giving away of his riches or through his fourfold restitution. He didn't earn salvation through either of those actions. He did what he did because Jesus found him, he called to him, he saved him, he gave him a new heart. That's why he did what he did. 
Not to earn salvation, but because salvation had already come to him. And this is why Jesus declares that salvation had come to this man's house, since he also is the son of Abraham. That was not just a statement about Zacchaeus being a Jew. It was not a statement about Zacchaeus' ethnic bloodline. It was a statement which declared Zacchaeus to be a true spiritual son of Abraham because he shared in something that was far more important than Abraham's ethnicity. He shared in Abraham's faith. Jesus was declaring what the Apostle Paul would declare in Galatians 3, verse 29. The Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Galatia, which was overwhelmingly Gentile, that is non-Jewish, The Apostle Paul says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Zacchaeus, in this moment, beloved, belonged to Christ. He had a new master. He had a Lord. He had a Savior in Jesus. He was united to Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit in that moment. He was a lost sheep who the Good Shepherd found and saved. And because of that reason, Jesus declared him to be Abraham's offspring and heir according to promise. Jesus came, beloved, to seek and save the lost. And because of that great truth, salvation, which is impossible for man, was impossible for Zacchaeus, is now possible for God or with God. And I think as we've been working our way through the end of Luke chapter 18, and now the beginning of Luke chapter 19, we have been seeing wonderful testimony to this great truth over the last several weeks. The salvation of a poor blind beggar, an impossible salvation, was achieved in Christ Jesus. Today we read of one particular, as I said before, a camel who did manage to pass through the eye of a needle, an exceedingly rich man who got into the kingdom of heaven. But he got in, not because Zacchaeus sought for Jesus, not because Zacchaeus did something quote-unquote good by giving away half his possessions, nothing like that. Zacchaeus got in because Jesus came and sought him and saved him. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He found Zacchaeus, he will find all of his lost sheep, and he will do what is impossible for us. He will save us and bring us into his kingdom. Rich or poor, beloved, Jew, Gentile, white, black, Hispanic, Latin, male, female, adult, child, none of it matters. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And we know that because of his death, And because of his resurrection, that he has not and he will not fail in this mission. He came to seek before we even had the thought in our mind to seek salvation in Jesus. Jesus came and sought us first and effectually called out to us. And we now have done the impossible through Christ. We pass through the eye of a needle and have entered in to God's eternal kingdom.